Have you ever been asked what makes a Christian different from a non-Christian? Maybe you've been asked by a non-Christian about why it is that you live the way that you do. Maybe you have a family member who, who doesn't quite understand why it is that you want to go to church on Sundays, even when you're traveling. Maybe you have a, a coworker who notices that you don't cut corners on the job. Or you have a neighbor that notices you always tell the truth, even when it would be more convenient to tell a lie. If you knew someone was going to ask you, what makes a Christian different from a non-Christian, what would you say? I'll give you a minute to think that over. In our current age, there are many things about the Christian faith which the world around us finds objectionable. You don't have to look far to find someone criticizing the Bible's teaching on family and marriage. Attacks on the sanctity of life amount around us every day. We see it right here in Maryland, uh, from efforts by the state legislature to direct taxpayer funding for abortion training to senseless murders and shootings on the streets of Baltimore. In some ways, it's, it's actually becoming easier to distinguish uh, someone who holds Christian beliefs from the unbelieving world. But in other ways, it's just as hard as ever before. We still face temptations to treat our enemies with contempt. We're still tempted to act pridefully and uncharitably. The desire for material success and approval by men still afflicts us. Dishonesty, bitterness, foolishness, apathy, and lust still remain and threaten to draw our gaze away from Christ. And when Christians find themselves in a culture that swims in self-righteousness, overindulgence, decadence, and opposition to objective moral standards, I find it often difficult to avoid getting splashed. The island of Crete, which is off the coast of Greece, was known as a place of immorality in the first century. Uh, Cretans were pagans who held to Greek mythology, believing that a majority of the Greek gods had been born on their island. They were very proud of it. They believed that Zeus had even been buried there. The men, they acted as violent mercenaries. Women exchanged family life for indulgent and licentious lifestyles. All the people were dishonest, and they worshipped dishonest gods. In the beginning of the letter of Titus in chapter 1, Paul says that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Paul sees how this culture is rubbing off on the church in Crete, and he writes to them to call them back to the gospel which saved them, to call them to holy living and to healthy church life. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he, give, he begins to give instruction to older men. He, be, he gives instruction to older women and how they're supposed to model lives for younger women. He gives instructions to younger men and to slaves because Paul longs for these believers to be different from the world around them. He wants them to be pure, to be sober-minded, to act with steadfast faith, 
and with self-control. And so here we find ourselves in our text this morning reading a letter with instructions to Titus, a preacher Paul had sent to lead the Christians here on Crete. And these Christians aren't unlike Christians today, us gathered here in Elkridge. They've been brought near to God in salvation, and there is a desire for holy living. But at the same time, they have not yet been fully renewed, and there, is, and there remains an internal battle where we wage war against sin. Perhaps you're someone who longs to have fellowship with God, and you want to walk down the narrow road, but every day you feel sinful flesh pulling you aside. You strive to be pure, but the fight against impurity can feel overwhelming. So what do we do when we find ourselves in this struggle? When sin is threatening to entangle us as we walk down the narrow path, what can we do? When we're tempted to believe, we're tempted to think, is it really worth the fight? Paul here has some instruction for us. So in Titus 2, starting in verse 11, it's on page 829 in the Bibles provided, Paul gives us the foundational reasoning for our fight against sin. And as we study together, I want us to see three ways that we can fight against sin and faithfully walk our pilgrim way. Titus chapter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And before we read, I want to pray for us. Father, I pray that as we study your word together this morning, that we will be stirred to trust that your grace is capable of saving us from our sins, sustaining us in this present age, and securing our future as your eternal people. In your son's name, amen. Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. As I said, this text gives us three ways Christians who find themselves living in an immoral world and who are facing the temptations of ungodliness can pursue godliness. The first is believe in saving grace. We'll find that in verse 11 and the first part of verse 14. It is believe in saving grace. The second way we can walk this pilgrim way is abide in enabling grace. We'll see that in verses 12 and the second part of verse 14. That's abide in enabling grace. And the third way is to hope in future grace. We'll see that in verse 13. Hope in future grace. On this side of eternity, Christians ought to live lives that reflect the glory of God. But when we struggle and we're tempted to blend into the background and adopt the standards that the unbelieving world holds, we need to course correct. 
And the first thing Paul wants us to do when, when you need to course correct is to believe in saving grace. In, in verse 11, Paul writes that the grace of God has appeared. After giving his list of instructions to older men and, and older women and slaves and younger men, he says, for the reason that we do this, the reason we live the lives that we do, the foundation for our holy living is found in the appearing of the grace of God, which brings salvation. His first move is to point these struggling Christians to a real point in history wherein we see the grace of God. Now, what is this grace? This grace that we sung about a moment ago is the unmerited favor of God. It's his gift of salvation to sinners, a gift that you and I don't deserve because we are vile people. We once walked in rebellion towards God. We were deserving of wrath. We were at enmity. We were his enemies. And God, in all his holiness and justice, is right to punish those who break his law. If he didn't, he would be unjust. He would be a weak God, a compromising God. But the Bible says that God cannot tolerate even the stench of sin. And all those who walk in apathy toward God, and all those who choose to elevate their own desires and their own plan over God's desires, are to be accursed. They are under the judgment of God. They face the wrath of God. The prophet Isaiah writes, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. In Exodus, Moses says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Mankind finds our itself in a sad and desperate state of affairs wherein we are all sinners. And apart from the intervening work of God, every man and every woman on this earth is destined for wrath because we have all acted wickedly. Paul says in Romans 3, There is none righteous, no, not one. None who understands, none who seeks after God, all have turned aside. What then is our hope? Only that God would intervene and praise God that he did. Paul writes that grace has appeared. The great gift of God's grace has come. We are not without hope. Despite our sinful rebellion, God has made a way of salvation so that all kinds of people, whether old or young, uneducated, educated, poor or rich, There is a way of salvation. And this grace, which brings salvation, has appeared in the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says that Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. He gave himself. He laid his life down for us. He sacrificed his own life upon the cross, bearing the wrath of God that sinners deserved. He laid his life down for us, the people of God, his sheep, that redemption and reconciliation might be secured. You can look down at chapter 3, a few verses later, and see Paul's description of the Cretan Christians before they knew Christ. It says, we were foolish, 
disobedient, deceived, slaves to lusts and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, hating one another. Such was the state of affairs of all of us before coming into contact with Christ. But then the kindness of God appeared in our Savior. Grace appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. When the angel appeared to Joseph in the dream, he told Joseph that the son of, that the son of Mary would be named Jesus because he would save people from their sins. And as we walk in this present day, and we wonder why it is that we're supposed to live holy lives, set apart, Paul is reminding us here that grace has appeared and that we live these holy lives because grace has appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. Why should you live a holy life? Look to the cross which set you free from the penalty of sin. We were slaves to sin without hope, but grace appeared and ransomed us from that slavery. The most marvelous thing in all of history has happened. Jesus Christ, the God-man, God incarnate, came down on a rescue mission to save sinners. He died in our place. He rose from the dead, conquering death through death, and securing salvation for his people. We sang about it earlier. Amazing grace. Saving grace that saved a wretch like me. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord that exceeds our sin And our guilt, grace that is greater than all our sin has appeared. If we've been purchased with the price of Jesus' life, if we've been delivered, if we've been set free from the slavery to sin and set free from the power and bondage to sin, how could we ever go back to that? We've been purified from lawlessness. Our souls have been cleansed. How could we ever go back and revel in the filth of that sin? Now, all those who are in Christ recognize the consequences of such living. We know that ungodly, proud, and dishonest living brings destruction and judgment. It's separation from our creator God. It's eternal punishment. It's exclusion from God's great redemptive plan. But praise God that God in all his kindness and great love made a way for, for sinners to be reconciled to him. And so, Christian, as you wander this weary pilgrim way, as we fight against sin and every day deny ourselves and deny the flesh, we must begin by believing in saving grace. And that leads us to our second point, uh, abide in enabling grace. Uh, look again at verses 12 and 14. Teaching us that, Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Paul shows us that this initial appearing of grace in verse 11, this saving grace, teaches us to live godly lives in the here and now. This grace is a teacher, without just like a, a kindergartner needs a teacher to guide and to grow. Without this grace, we have no hope of growth. We have no hope to walk in the light as God is in the light. We find ourselves walking in darkness without this grace. 
But so long as we abide in this grace, as we abide in Jesus Christ, we will be enabled to live this Christian life. It will teach us to deny that which is not like God and to embrace that which is like God. In fact, if you, if you take these three adverbs, soberly, righteously, and godly, and compare them to how Paul describes the Cretans chapter, in chapter 1, verse 13, liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons, you see a striking side-by-side comparison. It's almost as if Paul is saying, look at how the Cretans live and do the exact opposite. Is this not the way of all those who come to Christ? When we believe in saving grace, we have a change in our attitude and our appetites. When we're struck by the glory of God and grace of God at the cross and resurrection, we look at our old pattern of life and we turn away from it. In this new life, the Christian begins to renounce his sinful way of living and we rip out the idols from our hearts. In this new life, Christians find themselves not just in a new relationship with God, but in a new relationship with sin. The old life was one where we were ignorant, apathetic, or hostile to God. But as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and the new has come. I like one sermon illustration uh, that a preacher uses where uh, he, he shows up late to a sermon, and uh, you know, the crowd is waiting for him, and uh, you know, he gets on stage, and uh, he, he says, I'm, I'm so sorry I'm late. I just got, I, I, was, I, was on the, you know, I was on the highway, I got a flat tire, I was changing the tire, and, you know, lug nut rolled out on the road, and while I was, went to go get the lug nut, and I was standing in the road, I got hit by a truck. And so, sorry about that, I'm late, you know, but I'm, I'm here. If, if someone said that, that was the excuse. You'd say, you're lying. You just got hit by a Mack truck. You're supposed to look different. Something changes when you get hit by an 18-ton truck. But friends, how much more different do we look when we get hit by the grace of God? Now, Paul is not uh, foolish enough to think that these struggling Christians can do the work of self-denial and godly living completely in their own power. Rather, he points them to the grace which enables them to live this Christian life. We think about maybe Paul's letter in Ephesians 6, where he talks about the armor of God, and he urges the Ephesians, he doesn't say, grit your teeth. He doesn't say, stand strong and do the best you can. He says, Stand strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. And here in our passage, after explaining the way of Christian living, he shows us that grace teaches and that Christ is graciously forming a people for himself. Christ is graciously, constantly holding on to us, interceding on our behalf that we might not fall away. As a potter molds a clay, molds a bowl, so Christ is forming and shaping us so that he might call us his own. He saves us in his grace, and in grace he enables us to be zealous for good works. We think about the the teaching in, in John chapter 15, 
where he says, those who abide in me will bear fruit. Those who do not abide do not bear fruit and are cast out into the fire. Jesus is forming a peculiar people, a a special people, a people that looks different from the world around, a people who point others to the way of eternal life, a people who exemplify the gospel. That's what we're doing here right now as a church. Our gathering here is the gospel made visible. We'll do that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. We'll remember Christ's death on the cross. And in the taking of this Lord's Supper, we show that all those who trust in Christ will reap the benefits of his sacrifice. We proclaim his death and resurrection. And we show that one day we will meet him again face-to-face at the heavenly table. The meeting of the saints, the preaching of the word, the singing of songs together, discipling one another, all these things which the church does makes the church one of the most ordinary highways and byways that God's enabling grace travels on and by which we receive it. All those who long to walk godly lives in the present age can find the enabling grace and the presence of the gathered community of believers. Friends, it's, uh, it's the person of God. It is in the person of God where we find the face, the, uh, where we find grace and the, the power of grace to live each day. It's when we meet him in prayer, where we are reminded of his goodness. When we meet him in his word, we're reminded of his sovereignty. And when we abide in him through prayer and continued meditation in his word, other ordinary means by which we are enabled to follow Christ. We are able to more, more equipped and enabled to walk this pilgrim way. When we cut ourselves off from this source and choose to abide in our own understanding, when we choose to not gather, when we choose to look to the example of the world, to worldly wisdom, we'll quickly fall away. And, and I, I, I'm so thankful for... Uh, the amount of Christian community, because I, I cannot get enough grace to last one sitting for the entire week. Every hour I need thee. Every day, every minute, I need the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. I know how feeble I am. I know, I know, what, I'm, I know what Zach Jones is capable of when he's left to his own devices. But I will be able to ward off the devil's arrows and run the race of perseverance set before me if I'm in the gathered community of the local church, if I'm abiding in enabling grace. And we may all be hobbling along this, this, this narrow way. If you, if you read John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress, you see how, how many difficulties he has on the road to the celestial city. But make no mistake, Paul here in Titus wants us to throw off everything that entangles us so that we can run free and run into the arms of our Savior. This brings us to our third point, our third way that we can fight ungodliness, and that is hope in future grace. Look at verse 13 again. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our blessed hope is the seeing of Christ face to face. 
And when I say hope, and when Paul says hope, we're not referring to an uncertain kind of hope, wherein I hope that it doesn't rain tomorrow. Elsewhere, the Bible says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We can, Paul calls us a blessed hope because it is most assuredly happening. Grace appeared once to bring about salvation, and grace, what we may call future grace, will bring us face-to-face with Christ Jesus. We think back to Jesus' promise to the Sanhedrin before, in the hours before he was crucified. As Matthew records in chapter 26, he says, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus has promised that this will happen, and he is our great God and Savior. He will gloriously appear. And when we see him, either at the end of our lives or at the end of this age, it will be glorious. But the reason it's glorious is because of who it is that's coming. Look, look, at what Paul, look at how Paul speaks of Jesus. He says, of the great God and our Savior. Many translations will say, our great God and Savior, so that the, uh, that the plural possessive, our, is actually only applying to one person, Jesus. And long, you know, there have been many times in scholarly debates over whether or not Paul is referring to two people here. Is he referring to our God and our Savior? Make no mistake, he's referring to one person. There is one appearing, one person who will appear in the sky, and that is the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is, this is Jesus Christ, the, the God-man, the one who uh, shone before his disciples in the glorious transfiguration, the second person of the Godhead, the firstborn among all creation, the very image of the invisible God, the one by whom all things were created, the word of life, the bread of life, the one whose blood was shed that we might be ransomed, the one who conquered death by death and who rose in eternal power over death and sin, conquering death, that we might be reconciled to God. This God is our Savior, Jesus Christ. He will appear, and in a blessed hope, we will get to enjoy and eternally be happy in right relationship with him. We'll be happy forever. Future grace will carry us onward, where we will be given the unmerited favor of God and the unmerited gift of eternal gladness. Future grace will enable us to do the very thing that we cannot do now. We can't, right now, we cannot worship God in perf- perfected bodies free from sin and temptation. But future grace will carry us on to that day when we will. Future grace will arrive every day now so that our hearts overflow with the eternal task of enjoying this good and all-glorious Savior. Friend, I... I I urge you to look at this future grace, the, the, the promise, the secured promise of seeing him again to overcome your unbelief. I pray that you will rest in this future grace to, to fight pride and bitterness. And, and I pray that the thoughts of the second coming and your meditations on, on our heavenly dwelling place will lead you to spend each time thinking 
each day about how great it will be when Christ arrives. You know, there was an old, old pastor, Richard Baxter, and his, he's, he's, uh, he was a sickly man, and in his, in his sickness, he spent 30, day, or 30 minutes a day meditating on what heaven would be like. I wonder, what, I wonder if you tried that for a week, how, how your life might be changed. And so as, as we go through this life stumbling through sin, rejecting that which would steer us away, we must be dead set about what our aim is. It is Christ. It is a right relationship with God. It is an eternity worshiping him, away from our sinful broken bodies now, away from our sinful minds, so that we may see him in all his glory. Dear friend, can I ask you, is this something that you hope for? Do you look forward to the day when when we're freed from our broken bodies? I know I'm certainly tempted to forget. It's really easy for me to get distracted, whether it's through my job or through obligations to my family. But it's a message that I need every day. Every day I need to be reminded of saving grace that I may reflect on my state before, before I knew God. I need to abide in enabling grace so that my joy in God might increase, and I need to hope in future grace that I may trust what lies ahead is way better than anything this world can offer. Romans 8.32 says it well, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God didn't even spare his own son. How can I not believe that he will give me all things, including that which lies ahead? He will give me the greatest gift of seeing, seeing him face to face. That and relying on that, trusting in that hope of future grace will help us carry us on this pilgrim way. For, for any non-Christians who are here, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. This is just the absolute best place that you can be on a Sunday morning. Let me ask, when tragedy strikes, what do you hope for? When a loved one or a friend dies, where do you find comfort? In the past several weeks, death has knocked on my door. Uh, A former roommate had his mother tragically uh, killed. And in uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, we recently lost a a, church, a former church member in the, in the Navy, and, and a tragic accident. Our days are numbered. Death, is, death, death has been on my mind, and I've, I've thought about, where is my hope in life and death? And, and for, the not, for the non-Christian who may be here, where is your hope? Outside of Christ, we, we have no hope. But with Christ, we have all the blessings of grace. This grace saves us from the penalty of sin, it rescues us from the power of sin, and it will deliver us from the presence of sin. Let me urge you today, if you haven't, trust in him. I'd be glad to talk to you about that afterwards. We should conclude. In one sense, this Christian life that that we are living together is between two gracious appearings— the appearing of Christ in the first century and the appearing of Christ 
at the end of our lives and at the end of the age. That is where Paul locates us in this text. We look back on the appearing of Christ in the first century, and we believe in his saving grace. We abide in his enabling grace so that we might be weaned away from the world, and we hope in future grace that will carry us onward to our heavenly home where we will see Christ face to face. How do we fight ungodliness? How do, we, how do we walk our weary pilgrim way? Believe in saving grace. Hope in future grace. Abide in enabling grace. Charles Spurgeon, in reflecting on this blessed hope of seeing Christ, says it well. This is a long quote, and then we'll, then we'll pray. We are living in the age which lies between the two blazing beacons of the divine appearings. And we are called to hasten from one to the other. The sacramental host of God's elect is marching on from the one appearing to the other with hasty foot. We have everything to hope for in the last appearing, as we have everything to trust in the first appearing. And we have now to wait with patient hope throughout that weary interval which intervenes. Paul calls it this present world. This marks its fleeting nature. It is present, but it is scarcely future. For the Lord may come so soon and thus end it all. It is present now, but it will not be present long. It is but a little time, and he that will come shall come and will not tarry. Now it is this present world. Oh, how how present it is. How sadly it surrounds us. Yet by faith, we count these present things to be unsubstantial as a dream. And we look to the things which are not seen and not present as being real and eternal. We pass through this world as men on pilgrimage. We traverse an enemy's country. Going from one manifestation to another, we're as birds migrating on the wing from one region to another. There is no rest for us, by the way. We are to keep ourselves as loose as we can from this country through which we make our pilgrim way. For, our strain- for we are strangers and foreigners, and here we have no continuing city. We hurry through this vanity fair. Before us lies the celestial city and the coming of the Lord, who is the king thereof. As voyagers cross the Atlantic and so pass from shore to shore, so do we speed over the waves of this ever-changing world to the glory land of the bright appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, you are a good and holy God. And we praise you that grace has appeared, that you, in all your kindness, made a way for salvation. And Father, as we struggle in our fight against sin, as we look to what lies ahead, we pray that grace in our hearts and thankfulness will overflow. In Jesus' name, amen.